New Zealanders are often described as shocking savers, but the government says this must change. On Insight, Karen Gregory Hunt investigates how much we save, whether we save enough and how we rate as investors. It's been a cold grey summer in Wellington, and as parents gather for junior cricket at a local park, the talk turns to money. Gary Weston-Webb is an IT manager at Te Puni Kokiri. He's a saver, investing in his workplace super fund, but also squirrelling away money for his children's future. He chose finance companies to invest this money, then watched as they failed, taking his savings with them. We invest uh, 20 bucks a week for each child, have done since they were very tiny, so that by the time they're 18, they should have twenty-five dollars to $30,000 to go to university, because there's no way we could otherwise come up with that money. Uh, we had 15000 locked up in DFC, and it looks like we'll get back something like uh, $2,500. Thousands of investors lost money the same way. The investment house McDill Stewart estimates $4 billion in finance company funds have been lost, are frozen or in receivership. Housing values, shares and managed funds also lost value after the credit balloon burst in 2008. In its wake, New Zealanders have stopped spending and begun reducing debt. Cameron Bagri is the chief economist at the country's largest bank, the ANZ National, and he sets out the current situation. Credit growth is very anemic. People are not taking on debt at the moment. New Zealand's current account deficit has fallen from 8% of GDP down to below 3% of GDP. Your net external debt for this country has gone from 100% of GDP down to 95%. So those are good dynamics in terms of New Zealand getting the message, getting back to basics. What we're seeing is a sea change in attitudes to spending. The message to save, not spend, was just normal, sensible behaviour in the past and was a perfectly acceptable homily for the 1960s classic children's film Mary Poppins. So, you have tuppence. May I be permitted to see it? No, I want it to feed the birds. Fiddlesticks, boy. Feed the birds and what have you got? Fat birds. In his speech at the opening of Parliament this year, the Prime Minister John Key outlined possible tax changes, including a lift in GST and lower taxes, intended to help return to habits of the past and transform New Zealanders into savers and investors. These changes will allow New Zealanders to take home more of their own income and don't they deserve to do that? They could therefore, Mr Speaker, use that income to save or to pay off their mortgage without being taxed on it. Saving and investment, Mr Speaker, would therefore be encouraged rather than consumption. Well, here I am at the bank. I'm a saver and I'd like to think I'm an investor too. Disclosure of interest here. I have three super funds, cash and term deposits in the bank, a parcel of shares and a part share in a Christchurch rental property. First the cash. It's done well with the bank, where deposit rates hit 8% plus, at least until 2008, when the Reserve Bank began dropping the official cash rate and deposit rates began the long slide down. Today, term deposits peak at about 5%, but at least the money's safe, with the government providing backup guarantees. Trust among many investors has soured for other riskier investments after months of financial turbulence. After being burnt by a finance company, Gary Weston-Webb says for him options are limited. 
What do you trust, uh, KiwiSaver? I wouldn't. Who's to know what the government's going to do with that? There is a dearth of things that you can go into. For my own part, now it's bank deposits only, term deposits. It's the only thing I'd trust. Which brings us back to Mary Poppins and the bank. If you invest your tuffins wisely in the bank, safe and sound, soon that tuffins safely invested in the bank will come pound. Back at the cricket, Anna of Kandala, who doesn't want her last name used, has heard John Key's call to arms. She plans to save more and it's going in the bank. Well, I think we'll probably try and cut our spending, hopefully get a rise in, in our income with the tax cut and just try and cut our spending so that we've got a little bit more in the bank. How are you going to invest it? Probably just leave it in the bank or maybe increase the amount we put into KiwiSaver. Because John Key and his friends would probably say, well, look at the share market, look at stocks and bonds and things like that. Yes, well, I think my family probably a bit more cautious. We've got a few stocks and shares, but I don't think we'd be looking to increase that investment in the stock market in the next little while. Can you tell me why? Uh, caution, I guess. <laughs> you don't trust them, do you? <laughs> uh, probably not. In 2008, as investments elsewhere imploded... Kiwi Bank reported a whopping 52% rise in assets and 8% profit growth. Last year, deposits surged by 39%, while debt levels fell. Kiwi Bank's Chief Executive Officer Sam Knowles says people want to know their money is with someone they trust. We have certainly seen over the last 18 months a real flight to quality, so it's the money that would have in past times perhaps gone on to finance companies or into the share market. Can you quantify the amount? I think overall, certainly on our, on our perspective, we're probably talking about a billion dollars that we, we, we got that we wouldn't have got if there hadn't been the flight to quality. The ANZ reports the same trend. Here's Chief Economist Cameron Bagri. There's an awful lot of uncertainty in terms of, you know, towards housing, towards the equity market, also towards the, the, the economy in general. So, that, you know, people are naturally being a little bit risk-averse. This faith in the bank is despite public perceptions that they've reaped monster profits and actively pushed people to take out loans. The ANZ in particular bore the fury of investors after the bank backed two funds managed by insurance giant ING, marketed as low-risk investments and a good alternative to bank deposits. Most investors in these funds lost 40% of their investment, though Cameron Bagri argues everyone bears some responsibility for the bust that followed the credit boom of the past decade. It's pretty easy with hindsight to play the blame game. Let's be honest here. Yeah, I think everybody can put their hand up here and take a bit of responsibility. New Zealand banks have still been tremendously profitable, so it's hard to argue that they've been irresponsible in terms of some of their lending practices. Some of it's been a little bit more speculative, but yeah, the regulators, yeah, where, where were they? Yeah, why were they not on top of activities happening across yeah, yeah, finance companies and, and, and the sort of stuff that, that was going on? Good question, and one Gary Weston-Webb would like an answer to. In the aftermath of his losses, like many investors, he's left with a septic attitude towards anything involving risk. From what I can see, the reason people invest so much in property rather than in stocks and bonds is because the share market is full of sharks, big ones. 
and there's no place for minnows whatsoever. You have no influence on what happens to your investment. It's a shocker. Most people my age have been stung at least twice by a slump since 1987. I'd no more go into shares than fly. Peter Smith is a Wellington share investor. He's been buying shares for years and admits he's won big and lost big over that time. He says he's been the victim of companies where smaller shareholders were treated as second-class investors by management and the big shareholders. He accuses them of acting in their own interests, leaving small shareholders to flounder in their wake. I am concerned about governance because I have suffered because of poor market governance. Can you explain what that means? Well, I think telecom was a classic example of where smaller shareholders were rorted. Fortunately, I wasn't a Faltec shareholder. I would have been extremely upset about what happened there. Peter Smith says he knows now what to look for, though many others don't. And amidst the market turmoil, a lot of investors have lost faith. There are lots of good directors and, and lots of very capable uh, managers. So, you know, it's not all bad, but I think... There have been some high-profile failures in market governance and I think they, they have scared off a lot of people. The government is taking this issue of market behaviour and governance seriously. The Capital Markets Development Task Force was convened last year to examine the country's capital markets. These are the companies, advisors and markets where investors buy and trade shares, bonds and other investment vehicles. Its findings confirm the concerns of investors like Gary Weston Webb and Peter Smith. Investment banker Rob Cameron headed the task force, and I asked him about the concerns of these investors. Some of the comments that I've got from some of my investors, it's a jungle out there, actually one says it's full of sharks. Is that true? Well, I don't know that it's full of sharks, but there certainly is variable quality around the investment advisory industry, uh, and... Um, the, some of the outcomes for investors have been poor, have been bad. The report cites poor governance, poor disclosure of fees and other details, and a simple lack of plain English, so investors know what they're buying. Rob Cameron believes there are a number of areas where change is needed. We need to get better information for investors. We need to have a, an environment which provides for much better direct responsibilities between uh, service providers and investors, and we have, need to have a better regulatory environment. Investment advisors say if you want to make money, you can't just leave it in the bank. The Director of Wealth Management at First NZ Capital, Chris West, says the sums are simple. A lot of clients are coming to us seeking advice as to how to generate the level of income they require. At 2.5% income, less tax, less inflation, they're almost going backwards. Many people know this. As finance companies collapsed and bank deposit rates slumped, investors have piled into other investment vehicles. Corporate bonds, which pay interest on money invested by the public, attracted $3 billion of investor funds last year, and a similar amount was spent on shares. Much of this money is invested by older people, who are looking for better returns than the bank, because they want the income to supplement their super. Rob Cameron says while many are playing it safe with the banks, others are investing in financial products they don't understand. It is pouring into banks, but it's also pouring into other areas where I still think investors don't have enough information. 
Brian Gaynor is a principal of the investment house Milford Asset Management. He says the rush into corporate bonds shows New Zealanders have learnt nothing from their experience with finance companies, simply plonking down money because the return looks so good. He cites last year's Fonterra Capital Raising, which quickly attracted investors with $800 million, before Fonterra had even issued a prospectus or an investment statement. Unfortunately, what happens in New Zealand, as soon as there's an announcement through the media, either through the newspapers, radio or television, that a major company is going to have a bond issue, investors tend to rush it without looking at the investment statement or prospectus. Now, most of these companies are okay, but it's very advisable that investors should look at the prospectus or investment statement first. Bonds can be tricky, and it depends on what sort you have. I'm here at the NZX, which lists these bonds. There are plain vanilla bonds, which pay out a set amount of interest on maturity. And there are reset and perpetual bonds, where the interest rate changes with the market. Sell on a low and you could lose money. Sell on a high and you make money. There are government bonds which are very secure, and others which the experts would rate as risky. Plenty of people get this wrong. Brian Gaynor received a visit last week from a distressed older investor who put all her savings with just one bond, a reset bond from ASB with an initial interest rate of 8%. But as wholesale interest rates have dropped, so have the value of the bonds, leaving this investor devastated. Her interest rates on these bonds have dropped, and they've dropped quite substantially. I mean, the argument that she used to me was that the advisor told her that these were good for her and she didn't really look at it. But, you know, you do have a certain amount of responsibility yourself to make sure that you understand where your money is going, because in the end, it's the investor's money, it's not the advisor's money. She was expecting to get an 8% return and is now getting somewhere like about 3%. Here's what the experts do. Chris West of First NZ Capital. What we try to do here is to minimise the credit risk and minimise the interest rate reinvestment risk. So we have assets maturing on a regular basis to smooth out those fluctuations in, in interest rates over time. Perhaps no one explained this to Brian Gaynor's distress visitor. Or possibly she didn't understand what she was told. Which isn't uncommon, according to Mark Weldon, Chief Executive of the New Zealand Stock Exchange, the NZX. Most people don't study economics and finance uh, and the financial community has done a tremendous job of keeping this confusing. A key piece of market advice for would-be investors is get a good advisor, but where do you find one? Last year, investment advisors were heavily criticised by Consumer New Zealand, which rated 17 investment houses based on the experience of mystery shoppers. The findings support those of the Capital Market Development Task Force. Sue Chetwin is the Chief Executive of Consumer New Zealand. The problems ranged from poor advice, poor analysis, uh, very expensive plans. Um, it also involved people purporting to be independent when they weren't. And I think of one of the most significant things that we, um, we think, you know, following the survey, is that we think that commissions should be banned. The issues raised by the survey, such as commissions on the sale of investment products, don't surprise Mark Weldon of the NZX. He says there are thousands of so-called investment advisors out there, most unqualified to give advice. We've had no regulation, which is one thing, but we've also had no required accreditation or education. So you've been able to hang your shingle out as a financial advisor with 
no background qualifications, checks, criteria or ongoing education requirements. In the Consumer New Zealand survey, just three investment houses received a good rating, including First NZ Capital. Among those rated as poor was Craig's Investment Partners, a top brokerage, which was dumbfounded by the result. Cameron Watson is Craig's Director of Private Wealth Research, and he mounts a vigorous defence. We do a better job than the survey showed. It's a tricky industry, it's a complicated industry, there's a lot of issues that can't be discovered in a, in a half-hour appointment. Despite the poor report, Craig's reports brisk business and cites returns for many portfolios of 10% plus last year. Much of that money was made in Australia. Cameron Watson says we could learn a lot about investing from the Australians, who save more and aren't afraid to seek advice. We have 75% in housing, they have 60%. We have 2% of our whole capital invested in shares. The Australians have 8%. And then if you look at funds, like pension funds and superannuation, KiwiSaver, that sort of thing, the Australians have 23% of their money in funds and we have 7%. One reason for the difference is Australia has compulsory superannuation, which means everyone's an investor. Still, as Mark Weldon notes, 60% of us own shares, either through funds, DIY investing or KiwiSaver. Investment houses endorse KiwiSaver. Some may have had doubts about the government subsidies involved, but most hope it will kickstart the savings and investment habit among New Zealanders. Chris West of First NZ Capital says KiwiSaver heads people in the right direction. If nothing else, if KiwiSaver has got the investing public of New Zealand thinking longer term, thinking about looking after themselves and not blindly hoping to be looked after in their retirement, it is a very good thing. Do your customers like it? Yes, again, in, in very general terms. KiwiSaver should be part of a, a long-term investment plan. But I asked him if broking houses really want money from the small players. There's a perception out there that no one wants the little guy. You've got to have quite a lot of money before you can go to a broking house and ask them for advice and a savings plan. Is that true? I'm not really aware on that. I think the wealth management or the advisory industry in New Zealand has a responsibility to its own uh, shareholders or stakeholders. I think there's a wider responsibility to the New Zealand economy to look after those people. They, they are our future. We need, to, we need to have a high level of financial literacy as a population. Uh, we need to be proactive and looking after our future. Cameron Watson agrees. A decade ago we set up a savings scheme for people who've got $100 a month that they want to start investing into shares or enter into a balanced portfolio. And we've still got that going and we encourage younger people and people just starting out to do something like that. But many New Zealanders are too quick to chase the next big thing and the big money. Cameron Bagri says the average investor has unrealistic expectations of what a decent return should be. If you talk to people around the, around the globe, yeah, they're conditioned towards you know, low single-digit returns. You know, New Zealanders just do not have that mindset. You know, we expect the double-digit returns. Now, the, those are extraordinary sort of returns. You're not going to get them on average over the economic cycle. The experts say successful investors have a plan, and they stick to it. And they diversify, something that's not well understood in this country, as Cameron Watson of Craig's Investment Partners explains. 
If there's one element of investing you've got to get your head around is diversification. What does that mean? Because I suspect a lot of New Zealanders don't really know what it means. A lot of New Zealanders said, I did diversify, I put my money in three different finance companies. Yes, there's good diversification and there isn't. If you trace back to every disaster you see, and we see many disasters where people have lost perhaps two-thirds of their life savings, the common trait across every disaster is a lack of diversification. What Cameron Watson is talking about is the need to invest in different assets, and there are just three, property, shares and bonds. The result should be a balanced portfolio, and I suspect mine would be considered unbalanced. I've no bonds and just one share, Telecom, which I bought at $4.80, then watched as they sagged to less than half that price. But here's the thing about shares. The yield is a healthy 10% plus, and I've bought more of these shares at a lower price as well. And if I keep doing that and reinvesting the dividend, I'll iron out the losses and hopefully come out even or even make some money. This is called dollar cost averaging, and it's a key tenet of share investing. Martin Douse is the chair of the Wellington branch of the Shareholders Association. He explains how this works. You're not sort of saying, oh, I've got a, a wad of money, I've just sold my house and I'm going to put 50000 in the share market, bang. You're better off to sort of trickle it in over a couple of years, and that also gives you the opportunity to see how things are doing. You get the advantage of the dollar cost averaging. When um, share market is down and shares are cheap to buy, you'll be getting more of them. Uh, when they're more expensive, you'll be getting less. And be prepared to be in for the long haul. Australia also looms large for our DIY investor. I tend to invest about 75% in the Australian market and 25% in New Zealand. The accepted wisdom is that shares beat every other asset class over the long haul, including property. Though Martin Dow says in reality, housing gives shares a run for their money. He says people also imagine they know what they're doing. People understand property. It's quite straightforward for a lot of New Zealanders to go out and buy a property, rent it out, they can poke a stick at it. But it's generally a good idea whether it's a good property or not, and it's easy enough to get a builder in to look at it. It's fairly straightforward. And that brings us to the elephant in the room where New Zealand's savings record is concerned. I'm standing just above Wellington's The Terrace. Prime rental real estate. In fact, there are lots of flats around here, with the university and town so close. Investment properties are worth $200 billion, dwarfing every other asset class. It also underpins our savings record, which looks healthy, thanks to the spiralling value of housing since 2000. But look at these figures a different way, and they tell a different story. Treasury researchers Grant Scobie and Catherine Henderson have produced one of the most comprehensive studies yet of New Zealand's savings record. It uses Treasury figures measuring income less expenditure, as well as other figures on housing wealth. The pair also used information from Statistics New Zealand's groundbreaking study of wealth and income, named SOPHIE. Sophie measures the wealth of 22,000 people in detail every two years. Grant Scobie explains the initial finding. From the survey, the median level of savings was about 16% as a percentage of gross income. This is over the period 2004 to 2006, which was a pretty favourable period for the economy as a whole. This looks positive, with even the poorest people saving 10%, while the richest saved 28%. But when housing was deducted, savings slumped to just 11% for the richest people, while there were negative savings for the poorest. That's 40% of the sample. 
Dr Grant Scobie. When we take the active part, that is get rid of house prices out of there, it comes down to between 2 and 5%, depending how we make the adjustment for house prices. And that, say the experts, is not good enough. One reason is the high interest New Zealanders pay for loans, because so much money is borrowed overseas, and banks charge small indebted countries like ours premium interest rates. This hurts businesses and households. Chris West of First NZ Capital. Kiwis are not bad savers, they could be better savers. They could be more effective savers, they need to be. Why is that? For a couple of reasons. One, the country runs at a, 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 we're running a current account deficit that has to be funded either internally or from offshore borrowing. Um, it, it would help to have a higher level of uh, savings at the household level and an aggregate at the national level. There's an important rider here. The SOFI figures reflect savings before the credit crunch in 2008, so they don't measure the loss of wealth since then. Many property owners are likely to feel even poorer after the budget in May, when the government unveils planned changes to taxation on rental properties, which are likely to see deductions for depreciation and other expenses axed. Already housing valuations have taken a hit as property sales volumes hit record lows. Nigel Dong is a Wellington architect with a well-diversified portfolio including investment properties. Some of our property investments, I mean, they, they, they did well, obviously, go, going back a number of years. Uh, but in terms of the, the CVs, they've, a, a lot of our property holdings have you know, dropped. But until such time as you sell, you know, you, you're not actually losing any money. More worrying are the pending changes to the tax regime for his properties. That is a bit of a worry. But until such time as the new legislation is set, it's hard to know what, what the impact's going to be. Like many savers, Nigel Dong and his family have seen the value of managed funds also drop, though he remains a consistent saver. But many people are struggling, as prices for essentials have climbed in recent months. Back here in the supermarket, prices are surging. My supermarket receipts reveal price increases of between 5 and 10% for staples including milk, bread and eggs. The rent's up, ACC levies are up, school fees are up and on it goes. Kim Mudgwe is a single mother who runs the after-school care program at a Wellington primary school. She also receives Working for Families payments. She's fearful of what a GST increase will do to the household budget. Well, I'm really worried because if the figures I've heard are correct, GST could be about $25 to $26 a week difference and the extras that we're going to get, some are saying is only going to be $20, so already I'm behind the eight ball. It's just worrying me no end because it's hard to make ends meet at the moment. Kim Mudgway can't see how an income tax cut will enable her to save. Well, having worked in investment and insurance before, yes, the theory is great and I know I should be saving, but you've got to have it first. It's, you've got to be able to afford to live and have extra to invest, and I, there just isn't there, so I can't afford to dwell on the what I'd like to invest in. Do you think you're alone there? No, I honestly don't. I think a lot of people know they should be saving. A lot of people my age or slightly younger know they should have some sort of superannuation or plan for the future, but the reality is they just don't know how to start or they don't think they have the income to be able to do it. 
The government is promising to clean up the capital markets to encourage more people to invest. Changes include greater enforcement of current laws, stronger regulatory bodies and a better disclosure regime for investors. But how many people will benefit from the reforms if the savings sought by John Key fail to materialise? That Insight on Savings was written and presented by Karen Gregory Hunt. It was produced by Philip Atolli. Technical production was by Damon Taylor.